The reading this evening is taken from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, starting at verse 16, going into chapter 5. Um, I'm afraid I don't have a pew Bible in my hand, so I'm not sure exactly what number it is in your pew Bible. It's 2010 on this one, but I believe it's slightly different. So hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. Uh, good evening, everyone. It's uh, very good to be roasting here with you this evening um, in this lovely, um, cool environment that we find ourselves in. Um, for those of you who don't know me, you could either choose to wait two months and see a picture of me on the screen, or I can tell you now uh, that my name is Daniel, uh, and I'm a member of the church family here. Equally, if in two months' time you forget and would like to see a picture on the screen, um, I will probably appear on the screen there. Don't know why I'm gesturing at the screen now, because it won't be there now. This evening, it is warm, and this evening we are also continuing our series on 2 Corinthians. Um, and naturally, having read this passage, we're going to start by talking about estate agents, of course. <laughs> I don't think I need to clarify that, but um, just in case, um, I don't know if any of you have had to buy or rent a house at some point in the past, but when you do, you, your first port of call is usually the estate agents, and you will get either a physical brochure or um, something to look at online, and it will give you some pictures of the place that you're about to go and view. Um, now, obviously, the kind of worst case scenario is you have no pictures at all, in which case, when you end up in the house, you have absolutely no idea what you're heading towards. So it's useful if you've got some pictures of the rooms you're about to go into. Um, and once you've got that picture, you get a pretty good sense of what that room is going to be like. 
But depending on how the picture's been taken, how it's been framed, you might find that they've chosen a very strategic place to take the picture from. They might have used a particularly exciting lens that makes the room look bigger than it is, or that hides the fact that there's a massive hole in the wall or something like that. And this is one of these things where one picture gives you a sense of the room, but you get more of a sense if you've got more pictures of that room. If you've got people taking different pictures from different angles within the room, you get a better sense of what this room is like. Now, of course, it would be even better, the best sense you get of what this room is going to look like is by being able to actually go to the place itself physically to see what it looks like. But in lieu of that, the more pictures you have and the more angles you have of the room that you're looking at, the better. And this, to a certain extent, is, I believe, what Paul is providing us in this letter. Um, we're looking today primarily at verses 1 to 10 of chapter 5, but we've looked back a couple of verses as well to overlap a little bit with verses that Jonathan talked about last week. And that's because the images that we get presented with in chapter 5 are essentially different perspectives on the same point that Paul is trying to make earlier on. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 18, Paul is exhorting us, to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And through chapter five, we're gonna focus on three images that Paul gives us. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to think of these as three images of three different rooms, three completely different things that Paul is trying to point us at, but rather think of them as three different angles on the same point that Paul is trying to make. Think of these as him trying to show us in as many different ways as possible, something which ultimately is unseen and beyond that which we can see. So let's pray before we start. Lord God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word and for your spirit within us. And we pray now that as I speak and as we listen, would you be meeting with each one of us where we are? Would you be reaching into our hearts and showing us what we need to see this evening? Would you be helping us to hear what you have to say for us, and ultimately help us to be able to leave this place knowing you better through what we've heard from you this evening. Amen. So the three images we're going to be looking at are that of dwelling, that of dress, and that of deposit. And we're going to be starting with dwelling. Um, we've already picked up in a little bit on this um, in, in Kate's prayers and in the uh, reading that we've heard, but this is reading primarily from 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1 which says that for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So we have this contrast here between a tent on the one hand and a building on the other. We have some pictures here in case you're not familiar with what either of these things are. Um, on the left, um, there is a picture of a tent, probably not the same sort of tent that they would have been using 2000 years ago. And on the right is what I believe is a typical house in North Leamington. Um, <laughs> but Paul here is drawing some contrasts between what's on the left and what's on the right. And in particular, there are three things that this verse picks out. The first is transitory versus intransitory. One of the really useful things about a tent is that you can pack it up and you can move it somewhere else. It's really useful for its maneuverability but in particular, it's not useful for staying in one place for any particular length of time. When the Israelites were in the wilderness during the Exodus, they would live in tents and the presence of God would go alongside them in the tabernacle and the tabernacle would move around and go with them as they went. But when the Israelites reached the promised land of Israel, they lived in houses and in the time of Solomon, the tabernacle 
was replaced essentially with the temple, which was where God's presence lived. And ultimately for us, we are in our lives more in the wilderness stage than we are in the promised land stage. We're currently living in tents. Not necessarily literally. Um, When Peter writes in his first letter to his audience, he urges them as foreigners and exiles. He recognizes that they are not at home exactly where they are. And in Hebrews, the author reminds us that we do not have an enduring city here, but we are looking for the city that is to come. So we find ourselves currently in a transitory state, but we're heading towards that which is intransitory. The second distinction that the passage draws um, between the tent and between the, the house is that the tent is built by man and the house is built by God. And this, understandably, is quite a difference in craftsmanship. And ultimately, um, we see in the picture language of Revelation what this built by God house means. Revelation is another one of these books which is trying to paint through as many pictures as possible things which by ourselves we won't necessarily be able to fully understand and comprehend. In Revelation 21, it talks about the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It's not man-made, it's coming from God. And this is the city that we're awaiting. And the third distinction that Paul draws between the tent and between the house is that a tent is destructible, whereas a house is eternal. Roman tents would have lasted, if you were lucky, 10 or 20 years. Um, Castles are designed to be built for centuries to last for a long time. And God's kingdom is designed to be eternal. There's such a big difference between the durability that you'd experience when living in a tent and the durability that you experience when living in a castle. And yet it's so easy for us to feel like where we are now living in a tent is all that there is. And this is why we need reminding. It's why we need these pictures to continuously remind us again and again of where we are versus where we're going. Verses six and seven of our passage tell us, therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. And as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from God. As long as we are living in this tent, we are not yet in this eternal place. We haven't reached our final destination yet. And this is the first thing that I think Paul is trying to remind us here. The second image that Paul uses is that of dress or clothing. Um, In this passage, there are two uses of the word clothe. If you look in verses two and three, Paul says this, meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. And at this point, you'll be relieved to know that I do not have any visual aids for this (laughs) verse, because I would like to be invited back. Verse four is the other place where we pick up this notion of clothing. Paul says, for while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And this word clothe here is an interesting word. The Greek word, which I am about to butcher now, is ependuomai. Uh, And this has quite a distinct meaning. And what it means is to put on over in the sense of putting a coat on over a shirt. And I believe this is one of the reasons why we have these multiple images, these multiple different angles. Because when you move from a tent into a building, what do you do with the tent? 
if you don't need the tent anymore, the tent is essentially entirely redundant, right? You could just put it away. You're not going to need it anymore. You've got a house to live in. But the sense here is that when we're talking about clothing and putting on clothing, when we come from, um, from the perishable to the imperishable, in the language of 1 Corinthians 15, um, what is perishable is still there. We've not thrown away our mortal self, but instead we've augmented it. We've, in some sense, extended what we are. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul picks up on these ideas and uses very similar language here. He says, the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. So there's a sense that although we are perishable, although we are mortal, that what awaits us after death is something imperishable and something immortal, but something that still takes who we are into account. God isn't going to throw us away and replace us with better people. He's going to clothe us. I've seen a property program um, at some point in the past. Um, that's not just a complete non sequitur. Um, but they had some beams um, that were in the foundations and the beams were rotting. And what they did was they took steel bars and they put them in the midst of the wooden timbers. So what happened was the timbers were still there, but they were strengthened, they were significantly stronger. And where the timbers weren't able to support the building before, with these steel bars, they were the same. And yet visually, they were identical. It still looked like timber, but it had the strength of steel. And what this reminds us is that what we do now has importance. If we're currently in the desert, moving towards this house, it still matters what we do now. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 54 picks up a similar idea. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And again, we follow this idea of being consumed or swallowed up. And there's no greater picture than what it means for death to be swallowed up in victory than in Jesus' death on the cross. And in Jesus' death and in his resurrection, we get a glimpse, another glimpse, of what this looks like through Jesus' own resurrection body. When the disciples see Jesus, in the one sense, he is the same Jesus as he was before, as he says in Luke 24, in one of his resurrection appearances to his disciples. He says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. We see that Jesus has a physical body, and that body is, in some sense, the same. It bears the same scars that he had in his crucifixion, as he invites Thomas to look at. So in one sense, he is exactly who he was before. But in another sense, he's different. There are disciples on the road to Emmaus who walk with him. There's Mary, Magdalene in the garden, who both meet Jesus face to face and yet don't quite recognize him. So clearly there's something that's the same about Jesus, but there's also something that's different. The easiest way I can think of to think about it is if you imagine a child that you haven't seen for a number of years and they've grown up. When you see them, often they look like a completely different person. But when you find out who they are and you remember who they used to be, you can see how they've grown into that person even though they are completely different, perhaps, to how they looked before. And in some sense, this is the way that I believe God works through us and uses us. In some way, the experiences we go through now will form who we are in eternity. Again, going back to the picture language in Revelation. Revelation 19 talks about the bride of Christ coming 
um, to her wedding. And it says, for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And the passage clarifies that fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So in this wonderful wedding ceremony that Revelation looks forward to, the bride herself is wearing the good deeds that we have done. Likewise, elsewhere in Revelation, there's an image of incense rising up in the temple that is the prayers of God's holy people. What we do matters. This is picked up again in verse 10 of our passage where we're reminded that we receive what is due for us for what we do in the body. And in the words of the famous philosopher Maximus from Gladiator, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And this brings us back to verses 16 and 17 of chapter four of our passage, which says, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And this is the reality of life. We all, in our lives, as we grow older, face our bodies decaying. As we grow older, we start to waste away physically. And yet internally, we are being renewed day by day. Internally, the things that we do, even as our bodies start to fail, are achieving for us a glory that outweighs it all. And that's not to say that the things we go through feel light or momentary, or indeed that they are light or momentary. It's just that in comparison to the glory that awaits us, the light and momentary troubles far outweigh them all. Or the other way around, in fact. Um, and it's worth noting that at the end of chapter five and verse four, we have this idea of what is mortal being swallowed up by life. And I think this is a really interesting perspective because I think quite often when we think about our lives, we think about what are the next 10, 20, 50 years, however long, um, we're thinking that's what we think about often when we think about our life. But what this passage tells us is that what is mortal is being swallowed up by life in the same way as what is perishable is being swallowed up by what is imperishable. In other words, the part of our life where we're mortal is such a small part of what our life actually is. At the end of C.S. Lewis's um, The Chronicles of Narnia, the very last book, The Last Battle, the very last part of that book says this. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. At the moment, it's worth remembering that we are still in our cover and our title page, for our whole life is still to come. The final image in this passage is that of a deposit. And deposit particularly comes from chapter five and verse five, which says, now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And intuitively we understand what a deposit is. If I put a deposit down on an object, say a house or a car, what it means is that I've put some money towards this now, which means in some sense this object will be mine. I have staked a claim to it and it belongs to me, but it doesn't belong to me yet. Likewise, when a couple get engaged, it's a promise between them that one day they will get married, even though right now they're not married yet. 
This passage reminds us that as Christians, we have the Spirit of God living within us. And it's that Spirit of God that is God's deposit in us, guaranteeing that he will renew us. And there's certainly this dual aspect to this deposit. On the one hand, aspects of this deposit is now. I have put my money towards the house or towards the car now, and that is there. You are engaged and there is a commitment there. But it hasn't quite come around yet. And there's that tension that we always have to work with in the Christian life. I uh, bought a house last year, and the difference between what I thought home ownership would be like and what home ownership actually is like is quite different. There's always quite a lot to do. Um, likewise, I'm, I'm not married, but um, if we just have a quick show of hands of um, anyone here who is married or has been married, could you just raise your hand? Could you keep your hand up if once you were married, marriage was exactly the way that you thought it was going to be when you were engaged? Um, for those of you listening, every single hand has gone back down. <laughs> One hand has stayed up. Well, a half a hand has stayed up. Most hands have gone down. And that's not a critique of the engagement process. You know, everyone will prepare for marriage and they will spend time doing the estate agent thing of taking pictures from different angles. But however you prepare for it, it's not going to be quite the same as actually being there. 1 Corinthians 13, which is a passage often read at weddings, has this towards the end. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Mirrors 2,000 years ago wouldn't have been as shiny and polished as the ones that we have today. When you looked in a mirror, you wouldn't have seen a perfect image back at you. King James Bible puts this as looking through a glass darkly, where you get just a glimpse of what's on the other side. And ultimately, this is where we are at the moment. We're in a situation in the now and the not yet, where, where we are going is promised, but we're not quite there yet. And as part of that, that means that maybe where we are at the moment, not everything makes perfect sense. We don't know everything about where we're going to go. And even with the pictures that we get, and even with our lives as Christians, we're not always going to have all the answers to where we're going to be. But one day, we will. So we've looked at these three images, these image of dwelling, this image of dress, and this image of deposit. And in some sense, as we've said, these are three images making the same point. Originally, I was using these three subtitles for these sections. The first section was going to be temporary versus permanent, second section was lesser versus greater, and the third section was now versus future. But in some sense, every single one of these images is trying to portray, to a greater or lesser extent, all three of these points. Likewise, we've had a few quotes from Revelation this evening. And Revelation is a book, again, designed to help us to try and understand and see the things that we don't yet see. And so we're going to end with chapter 4 and verse 18, which says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And the idea of these images and the things that we've been thinking about this evening is to help us get a glimpse of that which is unseen, to help us see through that glass darkly, to see what is beyond. And there is always going to be more for us to see and more for us to understand through that as we look at these pictures. And there are a lot of things that we could draw out from these pictures. We've only touched on what some of them could represent. And hopefully, as we've been speaking, there have been 
particular images or particular aspects of these images that God has been putting on your heart to think about or to dive into more. And so it'd be good if we could spend a few minutes now just spending some time looking into those images. So if you'd like to stand with me, if you're able to, and perhaps the band could come back ready for final song in a few minutes. We are good to start by reflecting on the passages as we've looked at it and the images that we've seen. Maybe the idea of where we're at as being somewhere temporary on the way to somewhere permanent is something that you'd like to think about more. The idea of what we're doing now having an impact on who we are in eternity, perhaps. Perhaps you just need assurance of what's happening and where you're going and a recognition of the deposit in us. Or maybe you want a better glimpse of what is to come. Wherever you are, let's pray that God will speak to us now. Lord God, we thank you for all these images that you've given us. We thank you for the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians and for all that we can learn from it today. We pray now for each one of us here, wherever we may find ourselves and whatever you've been saying to us through this time together. Pray for those of us who are struggling with where we are currently, with health issues, with whatever challenges we may face now. And we pray that you would assure us of your future for us, of your assurance of salvation and a permanent new home in heaven for us. We pray for those of us who are struggling to see what the future looks like. And we thank you that your deposit in us is guaranteed. We thank you that you have shown your love for us in sending Christ to die on the cross. And by sending your spirit on us, you have guaranteed us where we are going. We thank you that you choose to work with us. And we pray that you would help us to recognize the works that you have set out for us to do. We thank you that you choose to partner with us. You choose to send us out as workers into your harvest field. And we pray that you would help us to recognize all that you are doing in us and through us so that when we come to give an account of what we have done, we can honor you through that. And we pray as we look towards our eternal home in heaven that you would reveal more of that to us. Let's just take a moment now of quiet to hear what God might have to say to us now. <laughs>